thanks for having me. Um, yeah, week after week, chapter after chapter, we have had the privilege to be witnesses to the journey that was set out for Jesus before the beginning of time. Because of Mark's detailed descriptions and our wonderful teachers, I have often felt like I am right there with the disciples walking alongside Jesus. But as with most journeys, there is a destination. In keeping with this theme, I would like to describe it like this. Imagine you're on a long journey, and at the end of your journey, there is a huge mountain you must climb. From a great distance away, the mountain does not look that big, but the closer you walk toward it, the bigger it becomes. In our verses this week, from Mark 14, 32 to 65, Jesus is nearing the end of his journey, and he is standing at the base of a mountain. And not only does he need to climb it, but he has to do it alone. What does Jesus do to prepare himself for the climb of his life? Just a few hours ago, we saw that Jesus and his disciples had celebrated the Passover meal. Mark 14, 26 states that they sang a hymn and went out to the Mount of Olives. On the lower slopes of the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane, it is actually an olive orchard enclosed by a stone wall some half a mile away from the city. It was secluded and private. Jesus went there to pray. From the parallel passage in Luke's account, it seems that this is a familiar place for Jesus to take his disciples. Luke twenty-two thirty-nine tells us that Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. But this particular night, he arrives with only 11 of his disciples, because Judas has already left the group to plan his betrayal. Jesus asks his disciples to join him in watching and praying. He brings Peter, James, and John further into the garden and expresses to them his extreme distress. Jesus says to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Never before is Jesus' humanity so evident. He is fully God, but he is also fully man. During the Last Supper, in his deity, he had just predicted that they would all desert him. Yet now, in his humanness, he needed the presence and companionship of his best friends during his darkest hour. He needed them both physically and emotionally to remind him that he was not alone. He asked them to keep watch and pray. Their spirits were willing, but their flesh was weak. Three times Jesus returns to find them sleeping. Humanly speaking, he was discouraged and even disappointed. Are these the same three disciples who had witnessed the spectacular transfiguration of Jesus just a few chapters ago? Full of energy and excitement, they wanted to erect tents and were willing to camp out at the top of a mountain. But here 
in the familiar garden of prayer. After digesting a big meal, they couldn't stay awake. As I think about this deeply, this further confirms to me what many of our teachers have already pointed out, that the disciples could not have fully understood what was about to take place in the hours and days ahead. Let me ask you something. If one of your best friends called you in the middle of the night, told you they were soon to die, and asked you during their last hour to be with them and pray, I'm pretty sure you wouldn't go back to sleep. How could the disciples have known? Their actions here do not lead us to believe that they fully understood. If we examine the text more closely, is Jesus asking for prayer for himself? Not really. He actually instructs them to watch and pray that they themselves would not fall into temptation. Knowing that their loyalties would be tested, he wants them to pray for their own faith to be strong in the face of the upcoming challenges of their relationship to Jesus. Can you relate to the disciples Do you really fully understand what it cost Jesus to secure our salvation? Are you weary from following him? Are you weary from praying? Are you weary from waiting? Certainly over this past year, there have been numerous tests of our faith. We all have personal testimonies of temptations, trials, and struggles. Through our circumstances of illness or illness of a loved one, fear, grief, being completely overwhelmed with too many people in our home, or maybe worse, the opposite feeling of being completely isolated and alone. As we will see, because of Jesus' perfect obedience in climbing that mountain, we never need to feel inadequate to meet the challenges that God puts before us. Jesus took on our weakness, faithlessness, sin, and unbelief with him to the cross. What enabled him to do that is revealed in the following prayer. Mark records for us one of the most intimate and heart-wrenching conversations between Jesus and his Father. Verse 36, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Verse 39 tells us, And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. He begins his prayer with Abba. In the rare instances in Scripture when Jesus calls his father Abba, it was usually followed by, Who art in heaven? But in this instance, he uses it without any qualifications attached. Abba is intensely personal and intimate. Prayer is all about relationship. In the foreword of the book, A Praying Life by Paul Miller, Dave Pollison says, Prayer is meant to be the conversation where your life and your God meet. Prayer is the means which draws us into relationship with our Father. And that relationship and connection is our greatest need. 
Prayer draws us into the presence of our Abba Father. And the more we get to know him, the more it changes our prayers from a list of, a list of wants and desires to worship and the desire to do his will rather than our own. Does that mean we stop asking? No. But it reframes the way we ask. It is about understanding who our Abba Father is and his heart toward you. Prayer is all about the person to whom we are asking. Jesus is communicating with the one he loves and the one who loves him. He is pouring out his heart to a faithful, loving, trustworthy, and kind father. We, too, have an Abba Father. Galatians 4, 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit into your, our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Jesus is not afraid to express his deepest fears, and neither should we. Romans 8.15 For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Not to go off on a rabbit trail, but take note of each instance of Abba being preceded by the word cry. This intimacy was expressing a very needy spirit. He was calling his father Abba from a relationship of extreme dependence. I have a four-year-old son named Max, grandson named Max. I was privileged to be a witness at his birth and was privileged to take part in his child care since he was born. To say that he and I are close is an understatement. In fact, sometimes when he is talking really fast, he calls me mom. (laughs) Then he looks at me and laughs and says, I mean Nana. One of the things I have helped with, with was his potty training. I have reinforced that being on the potty requires a certain amount of privacy. Recently, while he was visiting at my house, I had to use the potty, and I went in and closed the door. The next thing I knew, he had opened the door and saw me on the throne, and I said to him, privacy, please. Sure, he said. He promptly stepped into the bathroom and closed the door and stood there with a big smile on his face and waited until I was done. You see... Our relationship is so close and so intimate. Max cannot fathom being left out of anything Nana is doing. His presence with me in the throne room is a privilege of his relationship status with me. God has also birthed you. He created you and gave you not only a physical life, but a new spiritual life. He gave you new life in the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit. He knows you completely. There is nothing you can hide that he doesn't already know. In our most private moments, our Abba Father wants us to acknowledge him. Sometimes it may just be with a breath or a sigh or a groan, as in Romans 8.26, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray, 
but the Spirit himself interceded for us with groans that words cannot express. Ultimately, we don't need to worry about what we are asking for, how long we have been asking for it, or what words we may or may not use. It is about to whom our prayers are directed. We have seen Jesus seclude himself many times to go to his Father in prayer. Many times, that was at the end of a long day of ministry with crowds. The deep fellowship Jesus receives from his Father enables him to have the strength to continue to do his Father's will. Paul Miller, in his book, A Praying Life, says, This understanding does not come overnight, nor does it come through our efforts. It is a gift of the Spirit as we ask and comes as we mature in our relationship with our Father. Sometimes that comes through his blessings to us. Sometimes it happens in the hard through suffering. That brings us to the cup, which Jesus spoke about in Mark 10.38. This cup was foretold by the prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Habakkuk. It is a symbol of the outpoured wrath and judgment of God. Drinking it meant shame before men and alienation from God. Most of the commentators agree that it wasn't necessarily just the fear of the physical suffering that Jesus would endure that made his soul overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Rather, it was a keen sense of the enormous weight of our guilt and our sins, which he would take on himself. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who had no sin was being made sin for us. So Jesus asks, Everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. This request can seem like a bit of a paradox to us. On the one hand, Jesus has been predicting his death for some time now. In fact, it was God's plan for him to be in that exact spot at that exact time. He told his disciples that he was going to die. He knew it was time, he was following the plan, and he was carrying it out. So why ask, you might ask. Do you think Jesus thought that his father would change his mind and take away the cup. This was a display of the intimate prayer life of Jesus with his father. He pours out his heart in the midst of the of the seemingly impossible task ahead of him. Jesus wasn't necessarily asking for this cup to be taken away with the expectation that it would change the outcome. He was forever trusting the outcome to the one to whom he was praying. We are so privileged to witness this window into Jesus' heart. This example should encourage us as we approach our Abba Father, because we have also found ourselves at the end of ourselves. I recently had foot surgery. I had a bunion on my right foot that was getting larger and larger every year. It became so painful that it hurt just to go for a long walk or even drive my car any distance. Even though it was considered elective surgery, in my mind it really wasn't. 
Anyway, the doctor told me the recovery would entail not walking on it for four to six weeks. I thought, no problem, that will go quickly. I had it done in January, thinking I won't miss anything over the winter months. The surgery went smoothly, and my recovery went pretty much like he said. What I hadn't prepared myself for was the spiritual implication of suffering. With pain and disability and complete dependence on my husband for everything, little by little, it was like a dimmer light going out in my prayer life. With each passing week, I became more sad, lonely, and discouraged. I was not praying or reading the Bible unless I had to for Bible study. Sorry. (laughs) What had been an opportunity for me to allow the Lord to comfort me and be my strength caused me to go inward. Thankfully, I finally confessed this to the women in my small group, and they prayed for my prayer life. And slowly but surely, the dimmer light went back up. Sisters, our greatest need during our time of greatest need, is to be in relationship with our Abba Father. That means moving toward him when we least feel like it, even if it is only with groans or complaints. Many of us have found ourselves at the end of ourselves during this past year. Don't be afraid to tell someone else of your struggle. It is very real. Allow others to pray for your prayer life. The result of Jesus' time with his father was, not what I will, but what you will. Jesus yielded to God because he trusted that this plan was the only way to save humanity. In John 6, 38, Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Equally as much as he trusted the plan, he trusted in the one who planned it. Philippians 2.8, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Not only that, but in Hebrews 12.2, he calls it joy who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. This cup became his joy because he loves us so much. We have seen through the pages of Mark how much he loves every person he encounters, no matter their story. He counts it joy to take on our sin and suffer and endure the cross. That's how much he loves us. And he continues to intercede for us as we come to him with our honest groans, pain, and suffering. Let me ask you as you think about your own circumstances. Do you believe there is anything happening to you that is outside of God's will? How does that belief or unbelief reveal itself in your everyday life? We have all had some measure of suffering this past year. But the truth is, God has never left the scene. He is still on the throne. His will is being carried out. God doesn't bring anything into your life 
that he hasn't already equipped you to handle. Galatians 3.5 Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? And Hebrews 10.36 For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. As we take our hard things to God, we want to do it in a way that leads us back to God. It is okay to lament, as long as that lamenting leads us to God. If the purpose of prayer is intimacy with God, then the outcome will be taking on more and more of his likeness. This quote from Andy Stanley sums it up perfectly. Prayer is not about convincing God to do our bidding, but more about allowing him to move us to the place where we are willing to do his. This time of prayer helped Jesus to be more in tune with God and strengthened him to do his will. Instead of running from death, Jesus did the opposite. He went out to meet the enemy, not by force, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, which came as a result of this prayer session. So Jesus concludes his final prayer time and exclaims, Enough! This phrase is only found in Mark's account. This word for enough actually means it is settled or the bill is paid. The commentator John Stott says, What is settled in prayer would be carried out in life and in death. Unquote. There have been many references made to the comparison of Adam and the Garden of Eden and Jesus being the second Adam and the Garden of Gethsemane. William Lane in his commentary says it like this, Just as a rebellion in a garden, the Garden of Eden, brought death's reign over man, submission in the Garden of Gethsemane reversed that pattern of rebellion and set in motion a sequence of events which defeated death itself. This brings us to the next section where Jesus is arrested. We know from Mark 14, 1 and 2, that the chief priests and teachers of the law were wanting to arrest and kill Jesus. But they didn't want to do it during the feast because they were afraid of the crowds. However, opportunity presented itself when Judas Judas offered to turn him over. Why and how did Judas become a betrayer? After all, wasn't Judas a follower of Jesus along with all the, the other 11 disciples? A deep dive into the character of Judas reveals that he was the keeper of the money bag. After Jesus was anointed by the expensive perfume, John 12, 4-6 says, But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As the keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Further frustrating Judas was that he expected Jesus to be the kind of king that would rule over the kingdom. 
and that Judas expected a place of authority along with the others. When reality sank in that Jesus was not going to be that kind of ruler king, he was willing to betray him for 30 silver coins. It appears that there were some deep character issues with Judas that existed long before Jesus came on the scene. Hebrews 10, 26 to 27 says, If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Judas may have begun the walk with Jesus, but was his character changed as a result of walking with Jesus so closely? The seeds of sin that existed in Judas's life, instead of being rooted out, began to grow with every choice that he made. In Judas's case, the sins of greed, probably jealousy over the of, uh, over the the uh, favorite disciples, and envy had all taken root. The result was that Matthew twenty seven five says, and throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple. He departed, and he went and hanged himself. What a good warning for us. The choices we make lead toward or away from following Jesus. Judas knew that Jesus would be praying in the familiar garden. Why did Jesus, uh, Judas need to identify Jesus with a kiss? By this point, Jesus was certainly recognizable to the members of the Sanhedrin. But those who came with swords and clubs were Roman soldiers and servants of the priests. They would not necessarily have been able to pick him out. Also, by now, it was dark. They had not arrested him by day in the temple for fear that the crowds would riot. Arrests like these were made at night for two reasons. The victims may be sleeping and offer little resistance, and or the neighbors are not likely to gather and protest. This nighttime arrest also illustrates how illegitimate this arrest was. If it had been legitimate, it would have been made during the day. It was customary to greet your rabbi with a kiss as a token of respect. But this kiss from Judas was the kiss of betrayal and death. Mark's account of the servant of the priest getting his ear cut off is brief. But we know from parallel passages that it was Peter, who out of love for his master drew his sword. Peter had promised that he would not fail Jesus and was taking matters into his own hands. This account of Peter is such a very real example of the faith struggle we all have. On the one hand, we trust and follow Jesus, and then the next second, we are taking matters into our own hands and doing things our own way. But Jesus offers no resistance. He is in complete control. In fact, he reminds them that this is all happening to fulfill the scriptures from Zechariah 13, 7. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. be scattered. When their attempt at resistance doesn't work out, the disciples become afraid and run away. Sinclair Ferguson points out about the disciples 
It was not the weakness of a moment. It was the result of failing to build a solid foundation in watching and praying earlier in the evening. What a good word to us. When you know you will be up against something hard, do you make time first to pray? It might be a difficult conversation, a hard decision, or knowing you will be facing a long day of being pulled in a million directions. Whatever it is, take time to be prepared and pray. Not only had the disciples abandoned Jesus emotionally and spiritually, but now they had also abandoned him physically. Mark is the only gospel writer to mention this young man with the linen cloth wrap. Most of the commentators agreed that this young man was probably Mark himself. The commentators surmise that the Last Supper was probably held in the upper room of Mark's family home. So it seems Mark was following from a distance. But when the skirmish happened, he too abandoned Jesus. Apparently, by this time, the commentators are putting the time of day past midnight. Yet the Sanhedrin, which numbered 70 in all, came from every corner of the city. Caiaphas, the very powerful high priest, presided over the most famous inquisition in all of history. The commentator R. Kent Hughes states, Though the assembly had all the trappings of a legal proceeding, it was not legal. For according to its own rules, it was not to make final judgments at night, nor was it to do so outside its sacred chambers in the temple, nor was a capital offense to be determined during Passover. Nevertheless, they began their charade, looking first for the unanimous evidence from two witnesses, which was necessary for the conviction of a capital offense. Unfortunately for the Sanhedrin, none of the testimonies matched. Commentator R. Allen Cole states, the trouble on this occasion was not the lack of evidence, but too much. As usual, it was harder to agree on a consistent lie than to tell the simple truth. Caiaphas can't can't get the people to implicate Jesus. So Caiaphas turns and begins to question Jesus directly. But much to the frustration of Caiaphas, Jesus kept silent and refused to defend himself on the trumped-up charges. He kept silent because he was innocent of those charges. Does the silence mean that Jesus was not in control? To the contrary, Jesus is in complete control. Caiaphas's last hope was that Jesus would say something to incriminate himself. He is trying to get Jesus to say something that they can use to jail and kill him. In frustration, Caiaphas finally asked Jesus directly, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? In this case, Jesus was compelled to answer. This wasn't a matter of Jesus losing control or of getting frustrated or angry that he exploded to defend himself. To have remained silent on this question would have meant denying the truth of his deity. The Christ points to his claim to be the promised Messiah. 
while the Son of the Blessed One points to his claim to deity. The answer he gives is found only in the book of Mark. He replies, I am. He replies with the very name of God. In Exodus chapter 3, Moses asks the burning bush, Suppose I should go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is your name? Then what should I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am as sent me to you. In the book Knowing God, J.I. Packer writes, This name is not a description of God, but simply a declaration of his self-existence and his eternal changelessness, a reminder to mankind that he has life in himself and that what he is now, he is eternally. Jesus makes it perfectly clear to the Sanhedrin who he is. Not only that, he further quotes from Isaiah 52.8 and Daniel 7.13, describing himself as their future judge. This admittance was not meant to defend himself. It was the truth. Jesus is in complete control. We know that this is exactly what Caiaphas was looking for. Jesus' statement was considered blasphemy. In keeping with the tradition of hearing blasphemy, Caiaphas tore his clothes. He now had the ammunition he needed and called for a vote from the Sanhedrin. But as we know, it was God's plan at work from beginning to end. Where Jesus had previously remained silent on charges that wouldn't have amounted to anything, Jesus utters the words that ultimately seal his death sentence. This was the beginning of the end. Despite being alone, abandoned by his friends, arrested, and accused unjustly, Jesus begins his ascent of the mountain. He is prepared by prayer to do the will of his Father, strengthened by the Spirit and in complete control. Let me pray for us. Dear Jesus, thank you so much for making it possible to know our Abba Father by walking this impossible path. Thanks for the example you give us in drawing us near to your Father. And Abba Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for caring about every little detail of our lives, for desiring to hear from us as we come to you in prayer. And thank you, Holy Spirit, for teaching us how to cry out with words, groans, and sighs, and how to draw near to our Abba Father. Thank you, Jesus, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, words in the scripture. In his name we pray. Amen.